Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This is a podcast that focuses on helping you develop your career as a faculty member. Our goal is to spark your enthusiasm and passion in one of our four main pillars of development. Creativity and humanism, scholarly practice, leadership, and of course, teaching and supervision. Throughout this podcast, we're aiming to bring you insightful and inspiring conversations that spark your interests and open up your mind to new ways to grow as a faculty member. Okay, have we sparked your interest yet? Let's get started with this month's episode. All right, everyone, thank you so much for tuning into another episode. I'm really excited to bring you two phenomenal guests in this episode. The first is someone that I think is super inspirational, Dr. Susan Jack. She's a professor in the School of Nursing, and she's been involved in really amazing kind of research, really focusing on qualitative methodologies and how to actually bring those into the forefront of healthcare research. But we're going to bring her in to actually talk about something that has maybe a little bit of traditions aligned with what she's actually done with her career. But she's actually going to be talking about an extracurricular program that she's kicked off with the School of Nursing that's called Reading for Reason, as in R-E-A-S-O-N, as in School of Nursing. Very punny, right? But she's going to be talking about the emergence of this book club that they've created for the School of Nursing and the faculty within it to really explore how narratives in basically the literature can help us become better teachers and more empathetic providers and researchers when we are actually interacting with the community and the folks around us that we don't quite understand. So listen into that great conversation. Secondly, I'm also bringing to you a conversation with a colleague of mine, Dr. Sean Wandu. He's also an Emerge Doc. He, however, is an engineer by training first. And so he has that little metallic ring that he wears on his hand uh, to demonstrate that he is, of course, a duly certified professional and comes at it with a, a systems lens to talk to us a little bit about his bent on clinical scholarship and where that belongs in all of the journey that we have for those of us who are clinicians. So thanks so much for tuning into this episode and please listen up because these are two phenomenal guests. Hello everyone, my name is Teresa Chen and you've met me before but I have a new friend to introduce to you. This is Dr. Susan Jack and she's here to tell us about a really cool initiative that she started in the School of Nursing. So Susan, thank you for being here with me. Could you tell us a little bit about what brought about the initiative that you're about to tell us about? Great, super. Well, Dr. Chen, thank you so much for the invitation. And first to start, the initiative is called uh, Reading for Reason. And in its basic form, it is a book club within the School of Nursing at McMaster for faculty and staff for us to uh, read and learn and reflect about issues, about social justice issues, health equity issues, and really to invest time in learning about individuals' experiences of racism and discrimination and beginning to think about what what changes can we make or do we have the power to enact within our academic institutions? And really what brought this, I guess what brought this idea along is shortly following the uh, murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Uh, of course, I think globally, there was so much um, attention and awareness and perhaps even awakening, um, and myself as a, as, a, as a white, educated, privileged female, personally I went, I have so much, I have so much to learn. And um, I also serve as the president for the Nursing Network for Violence Against Women International, um, which is an international organization of nurses and midwives who do research and develop policy initiatives in the area to prevent violence against women and children. And so as part of that organization, 
uh, we said immediately, we need, we need to publish um, a statement from our organization in support of Black Lives Matter. Um, many of our members around the globe do research looking at um, women's experiences of violence and recognizing that Black women, Indigenous women, people of color experience violence disproportionately compared to other populations. So we knew that this was an important action for our organization to take. But as our board met, we said, you know, issuing a statement is important in recognizing that this is um, connected to work that we do, but making a statement is not enough. That this then just becomes performative allyship, and that's not enough. So one of the, the second steps that we took as a board in the short term, and, and still not enough, we do recognize, but we said, well, how do we provide guidance to all of our members, nurses and midwives, uh, most of which who are, are researchers, again, across the globe, about actions? What are actions that people can immediately begin to take in their lives to, to learn about discrimination, racism, um, to take action? And our first few actions in the list that we developed was about reflecting on your own position, your own privilege, to learn. And I, I've started to learn a lot through social media and, and the, the influencers that I follow on Twitter. And one of the things that I, one of the messages that I was learning through uh, Twitter is that I cannot burden um, individuals who are uh, Black or Indigenous to teach me about uh, racism or discrimination. It is my responsibility to take on that labor and to do my own learning. So I thought, okay one thing I do well is read. <laughs> and so I'm going to start reading. But I only learn when people challenge me and question me and force me to reflect. And when there's discussion and debate. So I thought, well, who can I, who can, who can I discuss and debate with? And um, I have two 18-year-old twin boys. And, you know, I tried at the dinner table to raise these issues. And, and so there's some discussion, but I thought, no, I need to go with some colleagues. I approached um, Dr. Sandra Carroll, who is a vice dean in the Faculty of Health Sciences and a director of the School of, of Nursing, to have some time in a faculty meeting to explore if my colleagues, both staff and faculty, would be interested in a book club where we could choose books that, at, you know, and we're focusing on Canadian content, uh, books where we could read first-person accounts of individuals' lived experiences as individuals of color uh, who are Black Canadians or Indigenous Canadians. So that was sort of the start of the initiative. Wow, that sounds so interesting, especially with your background as a qualitative researcher. You're leveraging your strengths to develop something that would be impactful to others. And I'm sure lots of people are really learning from the experience, partly because of your influence, but also partly just from reading alone. Right. I think that uh, you sometimes need that peer pressure to uh, learn something new, to, to feel comfortable with the discomfort of some of these issues, to not have that negative reaction that, oh, that, that's not happening in our you know, healthcare system, in our country. And yet, let's be completely honest, for those who are writing about it, sharing those stories, we certainly know that that's actually the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've recently met with someone um, in the community who's one of our patient advocates for one of our hospitals. And uh, he's a black gentleman who uh, works in politics, actually. And I was like, well, I will advocate for you where I can in the healthcare system. So long as you do me the favor at the tables at Queen's Park, do the same for us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's where we have to understand the experiences. We have to stop some of our snap judgments because those are driven by previous experiences. I always tell people the strangest thing is that the first uh, Black person I met was my pediatrician. And so I think I have a very skewed view of what it means to be a Black Canadian. And I have, I have had always the greatest respect for some of my colleagues who are of different races. Obviously, I'm a visible minority myself, although a privileged one in some ways, um, because, especially in the healthcare system. So definitely, uh, it's still important for us to understand the basis of where all of these systemic issues come from, and then how they manifest with our patients, with our colleagues, with the people in our lives. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I'm, I'm really struck by even what your comment about judgments. And I think this is really um, one of, as we've created this space for staff and faculty to come together, 
it allows us to sort of look at what implicit biases do we hold? What judgments do we hold? And what impact do those judgments have on our behaviors towards students and by extension for um, individuals who still maintain a clinical practice towards patients? And so, you know, in setting up the book club, the other thing that I, I was really committed to was to try to think about how do we create this as a safe staff, a, a safe space? Because inherently in inviting staff and faculty, there's hierarchies within academic and within academia. We can't ignore that, that, you know, um, academia is set up in a hierarchical structure. And um, so we really work to say that this is a space where everyone is welcome. And uh, our, at our first meeting, typically when you ask people to introduce themselves, the standard introduction is, hi, my name is whatever, Susan, and here's my title. And as soon as you state your title, you're stating your position. So I purposefully chose that we wouldn't have that type of introduction at our first meeting. Instead, everyone was asked to, you know, say their name. We know everyone's affiliated with the School of Nursing. And then to, you know, to share with the team, to the group, What's your favorite song that, you know, makes you feel summer? And it's great. We actually created a summer playlist of songs. And it's interesting of how much you learn about someone when they tell you what's their favorite summer jam and why and why they picked that. Um, and in that first hour, I think, boy, in this one hour, I've learned more about my colleagues than I ever have in my okay, 97, 20 plus years um, at, the, at the School of Nursing. And so we've sought really ways to minimize power within the book club, to create it as a safe space. People were worried, what happens if I don't read the book? Can I still come to the book club? Well, of course, everybody's busy. And during this time of, of COVID-19 and the multiple pressures on faculty and staff, and many of our staff are, um, and faculty are, are mothers and parents, you might not have time to uh, read. But again, the point of coming together and building this community of practice, essentially, is for discussion and reflection. We've started a Microsoft Teams group, and it's been great, right? So we had 27 individuals sign up to the book club. And even using Microsoft Teams, I can see how that's been a nice extension of our monthly meetings, because people now are reading something in the book, then they're posting an article to learn more about it. And I'm going, oh, this is going to have some secondary benefits of building community, building cohesion, um, beyond us just learning, reflecting, and discussing. Yeah, that's very, very cool. And so I guess thinking ahead to uh, other other applications of a similar sort of community, where do you think we could leverage more of this across even our faculty of health sciences, you know, maybe through program for faculty development, maybe it's through individual units, such as departments or divisions having something similar. Do you have any pro tips for people who are trying to pull this off on their own? Yeah, I think it's, anytime you start an initiative, I think the first one is, is to find um, a champion, right? So someone needs to ultimately be driving the process and excited and to generate enthusiasm. And in identifying a champion of initiative, I always think too, it's, it's best to do that in um, collaboration uh, with individuals. And so in starting this initiative, you know, the first two people I connected with uh, were, were two of my, my, my dearly esteemed colleagues, Dr. Bernice Downey and uh, Dr. Naomi Tulian, and said, what do you think of this idea? And, you know, how do we introduce it to faculty? So that's the first tip, is to find some champions and a group of individuals who are excited and who bring passion and get people um, enthusiastic about joining and who will have the momentum to keep this going. I think one of the issues is that often um, initiatives start with a lot of excitement, but then all of the other busyness in life occurs and it might wane off after time. So I think, you know, if, if you identify those people who will, who will keep it moving, keep it fresh. Well, some other tips uh, to, you know, maybe to have a broad purpose of the, of, the, of the book club, but maybe not too many tight rules. We don't have any terms of reference. I think right now we, we know that we're focusing on um, Canadian content, um, looking at books written by Indigenous and uh, Black scholars in Canada about their lived experiences, creating a bit of a, a, a schedule and sharing power. So um, at each meeting, we've determined that different individuals will volunteer uh, to facilitate the discussion through our Microsoft Teams group, um, different 
as people have questions or points that they want to talk about, then we ask them to post that in the teams. And the individual who's going to facilitate the book club discussion then has some points to, to start the discussion. So um, within the School of Nursing, we're meeting virtually uh, once a month. Of course, people are posting on teams all the time. So those would be some of the tips. And I hope I get a chance to tell you about our first book a little bit. And then that's yeah, my next, that's some of my next thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So tell us some of the books that you've done so far or some of the artifacts that you've actually reviewed. So it sounds like you've folded in other humanities, right, uh, into this. But uh, yeah, go, go for it. So here's our first book. Okay, they said this would be fun. And right. it's by... It's by it Eternity Martis. And Eternity Martis is a woman. Um, her family of origin is uh, she's mixed of both South Asian and Black. And she writes about those she presents to the world and seen by people in the world as a black woman. And uh, she grew up in Toronto. She uh, went to high school in Toronto and was really excited to start her undergraduate degree um, at Western University in London. So this book is her memoir of being um, a black woman on campus um, at Western in London. And while she contextualizes it and her experiences in London, at our last book club uh, last week, what we all recognized is that the, what she shared could be the experiences on any university, on any university campus. And her story of daily microaggressions, of moving to a city, of, of really the trauma associated with experiencing racism and discrimination in every space that she exhibited on the bus, being followed in stores, within the classroom, becoming the token black friend amongst young girls, about, about being a conquest for white boys, right, to have a black girlfriend. And so it's, it's, to me, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear uh, what an undergraduate student experiences in really, as she says, you know, and what should have been fun. And, and you know, many people see, think about that undergraduate experience as I'm going away to university, it's going to be so much fun. And that wasn't her experience. As a nurse and as a nurse researcher who conducts research, I conduct research in the area of violence against women and, and how do we prevent intimate partner violence, particularly among young women. What I was particularly struck by in this book is how much trauma she experiences and how many different forms of trauma. Um, so racism and discrimination are forms of trauma, of, of you know, systemic violence. She experiences physical, emotional, and sexual violence in her relationships. And as a nurse, through her writing, I see then that um, how this trauma manifests um, in her health, right? So in her behaviors. So she writes about binge drinking, the use of substance, different substances. And you think about, well, substances for many people are the way they manage and cope with, with stress and with trauma. And then there's the health impacts, the mental health, the physical injuries, chronic pain, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, right? So thinking about those consequences. And there's one really compelling part of the book where she's experiencing significant abdominal pain. And she goes to campus health services. And it's, it's a period of time that she describes that's right after um, Trayvon Martin's death in the United States. And, you know, she's writing about as a, as a black woman on campus in predominantly white spaces that, again, that added fear and stress of, of worrying about will she be harmed in these spaces. And so she, she has so much abdominal pain and she's ultimately uh, diagnosed with gastritis. And the nurse that's talking to her starts to talk about, you know, the connection between binge drinking and stress and gastritis and that, str that her stress was probably the main cause of gastritis. And um, so I think, the, and, and I've got the quote here. So the nurse says to her, well, what are you, what are you stressed about? And Eternity Martis, you know, doesn't answer. Instead, she has a passage where she's reflecting. And I'm just, it's a really short quote, but it's, I think this is really critical for nurses and physicians and other healthcare professionals to think about. Eternity says, I thought about how I would explain it to her, the nurse in, in campus health services. 
How does someone deal with the kind of stress that comes with feeling unwelcome and un unwanted when your grades are slipping because it's easier to spend hours getting drunk to forget about how misunderstood and hated you feel in this city and on this campus? How about when your ex is haunting you and you've made yourself a doormat for the men you're seeing and everywhere you go, you're reduced to a body part or a racist joke? Um, or when the only good friend you have, your anchor to home, doesn't understand any of this and is slipping away, and the only time you talk anymore is when night comes. What about when you can't tell if you need CBT to stop thinking that you're going to get assaulted, or if that's actually your new reality? What kind of remedy is there when you're in such a dark place that you're afraid for yourself or of yourself? How, doctor, should I aim to manage that kind of stress? And she then just responds to the nurse who's assessing her, I've just had a hard time adjusting to my second year. And she goes, and then the nurse didn't ask any questions. So that really leads me to my thoughts around what, what do we need to do as faculty and, and clinicians, knowing that so many of us have dual roles, what are the questions we need to ask all of our learners, all of our students, not just about what are your symptoms, you have abdominal pain, and then to give our, our common advice of stop drinking, eat better, reduce stress, and do self-care. We need to ask some different questions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to begin to think about how do we create learning spaces that are informed by the principles of trauma and violence-informed care. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the things that I started doing when the Black Lives Matters movement really kind of came about was that for people who visibly either personally identified or I could tell uh, would identify with a certain racial group or even people who had different perspectives on things, I, I would actually just say, look, right now is a very tense time. Have you encountered any racism or any uh, increased microaggression and we'd explore it a little bit. Most of them would say no. And I'd say, well, even if it's no right now, it might not be no all the time. So just know that our emergency department is a safe place if you ever need one. And I think people are pretty appreciative of it. And I think the learners, I think that's, that's where you can empath learners is to do some role modeling like that. And I know that it's not always a safe space. I think I, because of who I am, probably bring some safety to those environments just by being the attending physician that I, I currently am. And because I'm not Caucasian, for instance, people might actually act differently when I'm around, for instance. Uh, and I know that I can't guarantee that it'll always be the same experience, but I think that we can start to role model some of those protocols so that others can start to see that that's a normal procedure, that you should read the tenor of the day and, and make sure. Uh, with women, it's, you know, especially with all your research, obviously, it's, it's that they feel that they can tell us mm -hmm. that they are a sex worker and not get made fun of in the back room, right? And I've seen that happen uh, during my training. I've, I've pulled colleagues aside and, and explained that that's probably not something that we want to make sure that people feel that they can't disclose to us. Um, and, and I've highlighted cases where because that safe space is created, we can get someone out of an abusive situation, right? And so these are all really important things for us to start teaching about. And so whether that's with our nursing students or OT, PT students, because guess what? On your 17th round of physical therapy, that's when the abuser might not come. And that's when you can get someone out for the first time. And so I think that those are all space, safe spaces that hopefully we can create that trust and that bond and sensitize people to protocolize some of this safe space creation as part of what we do. Um, I think that um, uh, Dr. Bandari, uh, who's an orthopedic surgeon, has done really cool work with, you know, again, fracture clinic, you see them every two weeks until the fracture is healed. And guess what? On the third or fourth visit, that's when the, the domestic violence screening tool it kicks into high gear. And, you know, like I felt really bad when I read that paper because it meant that all those people usually came through the emergency department and we missed it then. But it could be because, you know, someone was there that wasn't there this time. Uh, they have a different opportunity for that. And I think it's really great work that we as a system can pick up for each other and make sure we close all the gaps in, 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 in our system. There's so many points you made that I'm so excited to, to reflect on. I think they're so critical as we 
um, look to our healthcare systems. One of them is that for many individuals, the healthcare system is not experienced as a safe place. And I really believe that the majority of nurses, people, nurses, physicians, OT, PTs, go into their field to make a difference to people and to improve their health. But we are not always experienced as a benevolent caregiver by the individuals who seek our services. And I think that really needs to change. And we need to understand, firstly, how do different individuals, caregivers, families, populations experience our healthcare services? With my researcher brain, I think that's the real richness that qualitative research brings us. For learners, I think it's so important that we increase our content around what is trauma, what are the different forms of trauma, and of course there's physical trauma from motor vehicle accidents or or, uh, violent injuries, gunshot wounds, knife wounds, Uh, but there's other forms of trauma. There's interpersonal types of trauma, so child maltreatment, intimate partner violence, elder abuse. There's systemic and social forms of violence, discrimination, racism, living in extreme poverty, experiencing homelessness. For many individuals, being socially and physically distanced, the pandemic will be experienced as a trauma, something that people do not have control over, and they have no capacity to stop. So trauma is really common, and because it's so common. I mean, estimates are that upwards of that 70% of individuals will have experienced one form of trauma in their life. If we just look at intimate partner violence, upwards of one in three women. Those are, those are pretty common events. So how do we support our learners and our clinicians to, be, to know what trauma is and to be aware of the health effects? And to almost use a, a universal precautions approach that you approach everyone in your emergency department. Um, in my work, I work with public health nurses who do home visiting with young mothers. How do you approach every home visit with that trauma and violence informed lens where you understand what trauma is, you understand how trauma influences people's behaviors and the decisions that they make, and importantly, how trauma appears, you know, the health, the health impacts. Are all of our learners aware of the red flags, right? So if someone comes in speaking about increased use of substances, increased use of anxiety, at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, what might be some traumatic experiences that they've had? So really, I think, you know, there's, there is a real need to have greater trauma awareness. And then it's how we do our work. I think so many of our, our, our clinical skills, so screening tools, asking people as soon as we see them about very intimate experiences does not create a safe space for all individuals. Um, and so you talked about the spaces And um, for people to disclose experiences of violence or experiences of substance abuse, they need to trust us. They need to know that the space that they've come into uh, within a healthcare setting is not only physically safe, that they have privacy and confidentiality maintained, but can they be emotionally safe in that space? Is someone, you know, going to listen to them? Is someone actually going to take the time to ask them what's their priority concern? and listen and validate their experiences. I think, you know, just saying our name, asking people what their main concern is, taking just a few minutes to listen and validate their experience can create those emotionally safe spaces. And once that occurs, then maybe people will choose to disclose to us what has been happening in their lives. But as you said, that might take multiple encounters with different clinicians. Yeah, and I think that if we all step up our game, then we, we, can, we get the chance to, each one of us get the chance to build that rapport. And just like you know, not every person you meet is going to be your best friend. Not every clinician that you meet will be the person that you choose to disclose to. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's where we need to fold it in, that our whole team, from the time you hit the circuit all the way through to you know rehab specialists, we need to create that space with all those encounters so that just like a misdiagnosis, this is a form of misdiagnosis in my mind, that someone eventually makes the diagnosis. And so mm-hmm. if we keep asking and checking up and offering, it's kind of like, just because you had a PE last week doesn't mean you have one now. But just because you've had one before it resolved doesn't mean that it can't recur. So I think those are also temporal things that we need to remember is that the incidence of these things that it, it's not like it's a one and done kind of thing. Uh, it's a recurrent phenomenon that people who experience trauma often, uh, for various reasons, there are more systemic 
experience trauma over and over again because of the life that they have. And so I think it's really important for us to have that discussion with our colleagues that we don't just protocolize it um, and, you know, make it a checklist item, but rather see it as a, as a key way to operationalize that kindness that we all need to bring into our clinical care. I agree. And I, I think this is absolutely not about checklisting. It's about transforming who we are as clinicians and how we engage with individuals. And every time I do workshops on trauma and violence-informed care, sometimes I go, do I really need to be teaching and reminding people about the importance of saying, you know, hi, my name is Susan Jack, <laughs> providing my name to someone. I'm your registered nurse, putting my title. Um, this is what I'm going to do today. So people appreciate anticipatory guidance, right? This is what I'm going to do and why and offering choices. And then even asking a few to, you know, asking a few questions. Is there anything in your past that might make it difficult today for me to insert this IV line? These, these small, um, these, I guess these small statements of saying your name, giving people choice, asking if there's anything that might be difficult for them. This doesn't take time. And I think this, this is so foundational to our education as nurses and physicians. Um, yet I'm not sure what happens when we go into practice and we lose some of this. And, and through some of my research, I hear, well, we're, we're too busy or there's, you know, multiple competing pressures. And I think no matter how busy you are, you know, to just do a few minutes of active listening, focus on the patient and the caregiver's needs, that doesn't take a lot of time. And maybe in the end, if we do some of that upfront work of active listening, of validating their experiences, of asking people's permission to touch them, to just telling them what we're going to do and why, explaining why instead of you know, just grabbing someone's arm to do a blood pressure can reduce anxiety. I think if we invest upfront in some of those actions, then maybe sort of down the road, uh, we reduce some of the problems that many clinicians speak about, and um, which for lack of a better term is non-compliance. Again, in a lot of my qualitative research. Oh, I, hate the, I, hate I, I hate that. I hate the term too. But, yeah, yeah. but, um, but I mean, I think what you're saying is that if you explain to someone and treat them like a human being yeah. and treat them as a peer and educate them along the way and are kind to them, that maybe you'll prevent that code white that's going to take half an hour of your time later on, right? If you de-escalate, that's reaction. Uh, if you can prevent, that's the best. That's the best situation, right? So, so how can we bring that kindness in? Because that kindness is going to cut through the violence that we all know exists, right? Like, I mean, we see it in the headlines all the time. You know, this nurse is punched out by that patient or a family member because, and it breaks my heart. Because what can we do? Because this is someone else's worst day of their life. And then on top of that, because we're busy, we haven't spent the time with them. The system is also broken and, and that's not to be ignored. But I think that we have to think of ways to systematize some of our own reactions and create that space so that we can de-escalate. Because it will be less of a nuisance overall. It will be less of a bother. It will be time saved if we spend a little bit more time up front. And maybe the place we start, too, it, it, systems are, are challenged and broken, and many strengths in, in the systems, but maybe the place we also start is role modeling with our learners, and really exploring also with our learners, our undergraduate nursing students, our graduate, our graduate students across the Faculty of Health Sciences, our, our learners at all different levels um, in medicine through medical school and uh, through their residencies, what do they experience in their learning context? Do they feel emotionally and physically safe in the clinical environment, in the classroom? Um, because I think uh, as, academic, as academics, um, as researchers, as clinicians, um, are we creating safe spaces within the university for our learners? And how do we work with our learners to learn from them, what is it like to walk into the School of Nursing? Are they, how are they greeted? Um, you know, is it a welcoming space? Same, you know, in the, in the School of Medicine or in the different departments, um, who answers the phone? Who helps them um, process different applications? 
you know, what is their experience there? And so I think we also have some work within the, with the, in the academic setting to do some of that role modeling. Yeah. So thinking about um, all of our, our learners and as they, you know, as start a new academic year, you know, even starting the winter term in, in January, 2021, um, this is a cohort of learners that will have had very different clinical experiences in hospitals. Many of their clinical experiences will have been disrupted. All of our learners themselves have been uh, balancing different forms of stress associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, multiple competing priorities. So when we think about learners coming into our clinical spaces, um, coming into our, our virtual classrooms, I, I imagine, we have a responsibility as faculty to begin to look at uh, what are some of the structures we have in place? Our attendance policies. Do we need attendance policies? How do we instead support students to want to be engaged in the class? You know, what information do we need to know from students if they're not physically in class? I think we need to look at, you know, things like, you know, what are, what are some of the oppress oppressive structures that we have within our our syllabi and revisit those so that when students come to our classrooms physically or clinically or virtually, they feel safe, they feel welcome, they can engage on their own terms. You know, and as we move to Zoom meetings, I think one example would be, I, I don't think as faculty we have a right to um, say that everyone has to turn on their camera. There may be many different reasons why a learner may choose not to turn on their camera within a class. Maybe they feel unsafe inviting their faculty or their clinical tutors who inherently hold um, more power than them into their personal space. Maybe they fear um, how their personal spaces will be judged. So I think there's, you know, there's some learning for faculty here as well to think about how we, how we make students feel safe as well as learners. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's just like anything else. You have to make sure that people feel safe. And so um, I think we also have to prep learners to try to figure out what would be the best you know, space for them to, to do some of the work. I know that there's some troubleshooting where as the campus opens up, hopefully um, being able to be on campus in, in classrooms and Zooming in, even if we aren't fully going live, maybe there'll be alternatives to offices or, or spaces where, where people could actually, with some cleaning procedures and social distancing procedures in, in order, give them high quality internet right? Um, these are all things that we have to consider. And so, yeah, the assumption has to be that there's some, some other reason and probably a systemic reason, such as you don't have really great bandwidth. There's too many people maybe in your household or in your, in your group being able, or in your location uh, using the same internet, you know, bandwidth. And, and that's mm -hmm. why the video is off. I think you can encourage the video and hopefully people will be able to do so. But there are definitely socioeconomic reasons why someone might not have the best internet. There um, are definitely privileges in, in terms of some people can put on a virtual background mm -hmm. um, and, and hide what's behind, right? And, and some people can't because of the, the I mean, I, I recently had a computer, like literally like last week that I couldn't do a virtual background on. So I know that if the tech's like four years old, it's yeah. not good enough. And so these are all things that we have to take into consideration and, and, and be sensitive to them as teachers for our learners because trauma begins even in, in those situations where then people feel that it's, it's fine to bully people into a certain behavior and, and then that translates into other, other parts of their lives. So I think that it's important to have those discussions. I agree. Well, thank you so much for a great discussion. We will be uh, definitely looking forward to hearing more. And, and maybe um, at some point, Susan, I'll challenge you to say, could we open up your great book club to other faculty, maybe um, in the Faculty of Health Sciences? Maybe not immediately, but maybe in, in, in someday's form or, or, or to have one that's uh, separate from the one that you've created for the School of Nursing. That's, uh, that's for all comers, because I think that there's definitely a, a desire for that kind of work. So thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. And uh, I think that would be an exciting idea. We learn so much when we come together and, and collaborate and bring different perspectives. And then just to end on a high note, I introduced you to the last book we read. And then just our next book is called A Mind Spread Out on the Ground by Alicia Elliott. I'm only a few pages in, but experiences of um, an Indigenous Canadian woman um, and her experiences of growing up in a family with mental health issues. And yeah. again, I think there will be a lot for us to reflect on what are the health impacts of trauma and violence and discrimination. Of course. Uh, so thank you very much. It's been great to chat with you. All right. Thank you so much for being our guest. 
Wow, that was a really awesome first segment of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. And now, on to our second segment. Hello, hello everyone. This is Teresa Chan again. Welcome back to our podcast. I'm here again with my colleague, Sean Mondu, who is an emergency physician, a quality improver, a leader, a scholar, and sometimes a philosopher. <laughs> and, uh, and Sean, I, I welcome you back to the podcast. And I do want to just um, highlight that you previously spoken to us a little bit about the, the slings and arrows of your early careerdom. And I think I really am very thankful that you shared us with those, those scholarly secrets. This time I've come to just actually talk to you about your subject content domain of expertise. Now, I know that at the core of it, you did do your engineering degree before you went over to the light side of medicine. (laughs) But uh, I mean, engineers are a profession in their own right, and you've migrated over here. So clearly you're someone who likes puzzles and likes to fix things and improve things. And so it's no wonder to me that you would pursue a a career and a path of uh, entering into quality improvement. And I'm sorry, could you like just tell me a little bit more about what QI or quality improvement is? Yeah, no, I can. I mean, the, the, the little anecdote that brings me from engineering to medicine is an interesting one. You know, I was going through my undergrad and was doing, I was working at uh, a company called Pratt & Whitney who made um, engines for aircraft. And, you know, we were going through this deployment at that time where they were deploying this thing called lean and I thought it was the most administrative useless construct and I said you know can we just get back to this idea of building engines (laughs) and you know fast forward now 10-12 years I'm now in medicine occasionally you know extolling the virtues of what the lean paradigms would mean in healthcare and so I've really come full circle in this whole idea and so you know, when I'm, I'm trying to talk about what quality improvement is, really, some quality improvement in medicine folks have defined as, you know, doing the right thing at the right time to the right patient with the right, you know, resourcing behind it. So that's kind of buzzy. But really, the, the whole idea around quality improvement is to take the clinical processes that we have come to live with or come to work in or come to be parts of as physicians and nurses and healthcare practitioners and look at those processes with a critical eye and ask ourselves how we get better while keeping really fundamental tenets about patient care and efficiency and cost and effectiveness at heart. It's no different than sometimes what we try to do in in evidence-based medicine. It just takes a different lens on the, the outcomes and the processes by which we get there. I don't know if that makes sense. 100%. I mean, I think that like QI kind of comes from a different tradition. So it uses different terminology for similar things. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, clinical researchers have come at it as knowledge translation. Some people have carved it as implementation science in the US. And QI is probably coming from a tradition of people from the front lines kind of mapping backwards back towards the evidence. And so I I definitely see there being like this mixing pot of all those three kind of perspectives in the middle there. And I, and I think that that's probably why a lot of us get a little bit confused. Like, is this research? Is it QI? Is it QA? Is it <laughs> yeah. lean? Is it like, there's all this, this jargon that comes from each of those traditions, right? One of these, one of these landmark papers in medical education, actually, that I'll talk about is that uh, recently a bunch of people got together and they were coming from two different frames, one frame around feedback and coaching and one frame of simulation debriefing, because those two things actually emerge separately and in parallel. But actually, like you can, as a practitioner in the front lines, I'm like, I use my debriefing training all the time in the clinical space. It was very obvious to me. And so they finally got everyone together and wrote like this masterful piece about learning conversations and how, who cares if it's attached to a sim mannequin or if it's in the clinical space, what we're doing is we're having great conversations to help people learn. And, and I think yeah. that what it is, is that you have great techniques that help us up our game with clinical work. And I think that that to me is that the heart of what KT, QI, and IS implementation science, like I got to name them all as alphabet soup, right? So, and in that alphabet soup in the middle, I think patients are the ones that benefit the most, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think where we're going is probably away from this idea. Like if I was, if I was mapping out right now where this whole notion of quality improvement is going, I would say that, you know, probably in 10 years, we have this 
this idea of what is improvement sciences. And then underneath that, we have, you know, the toolbox of what is clinical improvement. And so you could see quite convincingly that, I mean, I, I've, I've been thinking about this for a while and I'm not sure it'll ever go this way, but I, I think I would be delighted if it did, whereby hospitals had a group of, of um, improvement scientists, really, from all the different disciplines who they could approach and say, you know, this is the problem we're having. Which one of these groups is the best suited to address this problem? And you could even see within those groups, you know, that, you know, big data machine learning AI folks could be part of that spectrum there. Because there are some problems that, that are very well suited to, you know, an RCT answering a question around, you know, which device should we use for this or which drug should we use for this? There are questions that are very well suited to like, PDSA, you know, model for improvement type interventions, you know, how do we ensure that patients get this as part of their method of care? And then, you know, there's these great like machine learning AI stories around how do we optimize schedules in order to achieve the best patient flow. And so you could see that these ideas of clinical problems that hospitals are having, you know, could go to kind of a group of subcontractors of individuals who have different ways of thinking about solving problems. You know, the, the old story that, you know, when you have a hammer, you know, everything looks like a nail is, is true. I think we've gotten into this idea that, you know, when we've trained in a specific specialty, whether it's quality improvement, EVM or anything, that any of the big problems that we're facing could be solved through the methodology that we use. But I think less and less should we be relying on that. And I don't actually think that, you know, that will be something that we go to. Ultimately, I think we're going to look to different groups and different ideas and different methods to to solve our problems. And I'm kind of excited about where this is all going, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think that like if everyone's working towards the same end, if we can try to figure out how we can money bell those teams together for optimal payout, for, especially for our patients. I mean, I think there's a, probably a secondary gain for some of us academics, right? But I definitely think that at the end of the day, most, most of the time, people in this space are trying to aim to improve patient care, right? And so whatever we can do to do that and whatever tools are in our toolbox, we probably need hammers, we need nails, we need screwdrivers, we need, yeah. you know, we need everything, right? And so, yeah, the nails should have a voice too. And, and, and that's actually really important, bringing patients and families and advocacy into our structures um, as opposed to keeping them as a separate entity. So I think you're, you're onto something there. And I think that like, it's, it's really interesting because you map it back to, you know, what in the Academy, Ernest Boyer had written about the four different kinds of scholarship originally, right? Like he taught, he reconsidered the Academy in, it was 1990, I believe he published it in and he had this manifesto from the uh, Carnegie foundation in the U S and he said there were four kinds of scholarship, scholarship of discovery, scholarship of application, scholarship of integration and scholarship of teaching. And those were his big four. He added on later scholarship of engagement, which is about the community. And I think those are the five bounds of scholarship. And I think QI, just like education, just like everything else, can hit all of those. You need some people doing the discovery work. You need some people doing that conceptual work sometimes to think of new ideas, right? Lean methodology doesn't come out of nowhere, but it does have to be developed at some point. And then it needs to be imported, right? And so that's your scholarship of application and or scholarship of integration if you're stealing like an artist from another field. And then you need to like think about how you can teach it in a, in a rigorous manner, right? And our EBM folks here at McMaster are famous for how well they've taught the world how to do EBM, which is great, evidence-based medicine, for those who don't know what those three letters mean. And I think that at the end of it, it's also about bringing it back to our communities. So I think it's easy for clinicians to think about the communities as the patient, but also I think the broader community, the people that aren't patients yet, are, are, are also people that we can impact. And so... I really like you thinking about that checklist of different domains that we can think of. And, and so um, well, I think I mean, any that's... of that stuff could be great work that you can do. Well, I mean, what, you, what you've just outlined, I, I know you've told me about this study before. And in fact, I know I've read it before, but it, it's either slipped into my subconscious or, or I'd forgotten about it. But it's interesting because we just finished having a discussion here in Canada at the, at the National Library in Emergency Medicine around how we're going to think about advancing quality improvement and the domains in which we have expertise. And they're almost directly aligned with this idea of, you know, the, the buckets of scholarship. 
I 100% agree. And I think we're starting to find those experts within this specific, even within quality improvement, but within those, those four or five different buckets. And, and I think it, we're, we're kind of poised. I think the downfall of quality improvement scientists would be not to see the value of other sciences as, as they spring forth and, and demonstrate their ability to change and augment care. And so I think what I would say to the, the, the groups of improvers out there is be married to the end point and not the method by which you get there. Like be married to the idea of improving care for patients rather than the tool that gets you to that end point. And I think if we start thinking that way, we're going to create these great conglomerates of, of different specialties to address patient care. Yeah, I think the cross-disciplinary work can be really powerful. I mean, I think what you're talking about mirrors a lot of the same things that have happened in just like discovery level scholarship. Like people have had the quant versus qual, and then now people are mixed methods. And, and, and I think that the pragmatism of knowing a little bit of both uh, epistemologies has been really powerful for me as a researcher. Like I don't get to 130 papers without you know, doing a little bit of both because they, they fuel each other, right? Like uh, I'm yeah. fully in the, in the zone of uh, being pragmatic in that I am beholden to the question and I will use whatever tools I have. And, and then when I'm trying to improve something, I am, I am beholden to the improvement, not so much the, the tools that I, I happen to know, but rather I money ball my teams to bring in people that teach me new things all the time. And if I learned graphical analysis for a study, that's cool. And maybe I'll learn lean methodology for another time when I need to do something else, right? So I think that like, it's about that growth mindset again. We talked about it previously, but I truly believe that if you wanna be successful in academia, it's about being hungry about learning more and, and improving yourself. So there's also that PDSA cycle that I'm plan do study act cycle that you can have for yourself, which is yeah. what should I plan to learn? What can I do? What can I study with someone else? And then how can I act on it, right? And if you actually have that cycle for yourself as a, as a, as a scholar, I think that's where it's really powerful. That's where, that's where it can be really exciting for yourself too, right? Because John Sherbino kind of, I made a little YouTube video for him that's animated and everything for this, but it's like five minutes, totally worth it. You can check it on our website. I'll put it in the show notes. But he talks about how there's like a, there's a selection criteria for how to pick your next project. And so he talks about there being, uh, something in it for you, right? In terms of remuneration, maybe, or it's part of your job, you're hired for it, you kind of have to do it. But that's not enough unless you want to be really burdened with a lot of to-dos, right? But he says there's two other kind of like parts of that framework, like kind of a three-point checklist, a triangle, as you say. Uh, we love triangles in medical education. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but the idea would be that uh, the other the other corner of the framework is you know, is it better for the world, right? Like, and so is it something that can add in even just a little tiny minuscule droplet kind of way to, to the fabric of the world and improve it in just a little bit? And in QI works, you definitely hit that cycle all the time. So that's nice. You kind of automatically check that box whenever you're a quality improver, <laughs> I think. Yeah. And then the third one is, is, is there something in it for you to grow, right? Do you grow your network? Do you grow your skill set? Do you learn something new? Do you find out something you've been dying to find out for a long time? And I think those are the three checkpoints and if you can check two or three of those boxes, I think you're probably better off to use that as your filter. You don't have to check all three of them all the time. I mean, it's awesome when you do, but you don't have to, right? So I don't know, that's just another way to think about it. And I think that what's nice about QI and why I'm still drawn to it, even though I largely do my scholarship in other areas, is, is that I see the benefits of trying to improve the world. I, I really do see that as a call to arms as a, as a clinician and even as an educator. Like I think that if we can be improving the world a little bit along the way, it can be awesome. I totally agree. All right. So I think that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for exploring with me a little bit. I think I understand quality improvement a little bit more. And I think that we've nerded out on some other stuff, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> and uh, thanks so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, 
This is Mac PFD Spark signing off.